Last time we spoke about the Huon Gulf Offensive. The Japanese until now had considered their losses at Guadalcanal and at Bunagona as irretrievable. But with the loss of Salamau and Leahy, there was a brutal realization that they were going to have to pull back their defensive line. The absolute defensive line was established as the entire empire of the rising sun took two steps back. Meanwhile, General Douglas MacArthur and the Allied war planners decided to revise Operation Cartwheel. The enemy was in disarray, and this provided an opportunity to keep them off balance and to maintain the momentum. They decided to launch an offensive against the Huan Peninsula, to hit places like Finchafen. The offensive began with another bang as forces landed and advanced to seize immediate objectives to the misery of the already retreating Japanese forces. This episode is The Drive to Finchafen. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, if you're still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I'm about to release a podcast I did on the USS Hornet. You can also catch my Patreon account over at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for exclusive podcasts. Over there, this month's exclusive podcast is on Tomiyuki Yamashita and how he became the Tiger of Malaya. Before we leap over to New Guinea, we first need to talk about some developments in the Solomons. Admirals Kuzaka and Samajima were about to launch Operation Sego, the evacuation of Kolombangera. Now after the Battle of Vela La Vela, Brigadier Potter's 35th Battalion was closing in the Murkana Bay area by September the 26th. Potter sent two New Zealander platoons as a vanguard force. To face against them, Captain Surya had organized his meager forces and successfully surrounded the New Zealander platoons. This began a fight for the New Zealanders' survival that would last until October the 2nd. Worried about the fate of his two platoons, Potter ordered Lieutenant Seward with three companies to rescue the platoons. Seward described the endeavor as running straight into a hornet's nest. They ran into some Japanese machine gun positions, which they nicknamed Machine Gully, and it cost them 18 dead and 10 wounded. Turiya managed to halt their advance using Machine Gully, which was a dense rainforest concealing his men. On October the 2nd, the two platoons were finally rescued. The horrible casualties prompted Potter to halt all attacks until every landing craft could bring over the 37th Battalion from Tambala Bay to hit the other side. The 37th's movement down the rugged coast would be sluggish, giving the Japanese ample time to prepare for the evacuation of the Tsuriya unit. Meanwhile, General Sasaki and Admiral Ota were getting their forces ready for evacuation. Each unit was responsible for its supply and had to carry enough rations to last until at least October the 5th. All the troops had to carry their weapons and as much ammunition as they could, while medical supplies were divided amongst them. Mountain guns, quick-firing guns, heavy machine guns could be dissembled and carried if possible. Everything else was to be destroyed. 
and I mean everything. Even street signs were apparently destroyed. Sasaki moved all the wounded to the north shore of Kolombangera, where they were going to be the first loaded onto the destroyers. Oda was in charge of all the matters related to the embarkation, such as communications, locating hiding places for the barges, and loading which would take place between September the 28th and the 30th. They were expecting to evacuate 7,660 men in all. Operation Sego began on the 27th, as General Yoshimura's barges headed for Kolombangera in separate groups, and Admiral Ijun prepared his force of 11 destroyers to run towards the northern coast the following day. Only one of Yoshimura's groups, led by Commander Tanegashima, were intercepted as they headed down the slot. Five destroyers, the USS Claxton, Spence, Dyson, Foote, and Charles Osborne, led by Captain Martin Gillen, pounced on the force, destroying four barges. But the rest eventually escaped to Kolombangera by the 28th. Oda hid the barges as he awaited Ijun's destroyers. Ijun's force were spotted by a PBY due northeast of Green Island prompting Generals Moore and Twinning to launch an air raid. A strike force of radar-equipped B-24s of the 394th Bombardment Squadron intercepted Ijun's destroyers as they were passing by Bougainville. None of their bombing attempts found a hit, luckily for Ijun. Meanwhile, the barges began to depart up the slot towards Choizel, seeing zero opposition. At Toki Point, the barges awaited the destroyers before the loading process could begin. The only major mishap would occur when the commander of the barges carrying 735 men from Jack Arbor to board the Amagiri steered way too widely, missing a signal light from the destroyers, and he began heading for Vela La Vela. By the time they figured out the mistake and returned to the loading area, the destroyers were already gone, with only 1,950 men aboard. With the 1,950 men aboard, Ijun's destroyers made their first dash, and he would be intercepted again, this time by 27 B-24s. The strike was thwarted by Zero Fighter escorts and bad weather, allowing Ijun to arrive safely at Buka by the 29th. After this, the Americans were now fully alert to what was going on and responded by bombing Choisel. At 9.15am on the 29th, Kakasa was attacked by 17 Dauntless, 12 Avengers and 56 fighter escorts. Destroyers Patterson, McCalla, Foote and Ralph Talbot led by Captain Frank Walker, were sent up the slot to hunt barges as well. On September the 29th, Tanegashima was heading for Choisel with 11 barges carrying 1,100 men. At 10.30, the Americans found them. There was no moon that night, and frequent rain squalls dotted the slot. Upon seeing the Americans, Tanegashima ordered the barges to scatter, and Walker detached Mikala to hunt a small group while the rest of his force hunted the larger one. Yano, whose battalion was on the barges, recalled his barge running at full speed as shells flew all around them. No barge was sunk or seriously damaged as they made a quick getaway. Thus, the first stage of Operation Sego saw the rescue of over 6,000 men, relying on the combination of surprise and a lot of gambling, to be honest. But 25 barges were lost in the process. For stage 2, Samajima would reinforce the surviving 43 barges and 5 vendettes with 3 torpedo boats and 2 other armed boats. Yoshimura and Ijun planned to toss 3 destroyers, Kazagumo, Yogumo, and Akigumo, to be a diversion for the Americans. On the other side, Admiral Halsey ordered Admirals Merrill's Task Force 39, consisting of light cruisers Multiplier and Denver, 
Destroyers Eaton, Waller, Connie, Renshaw, Spence, Claxton, Dyson, Selvridge, and Charles Osborne to sweep the slot. Commander Chandler, with four destroyers, Pringle, Southley, Radford, and Grayson, was to be in the lead, followed up by Merrill with his two cruisers and nine destroyers. On the night of October the 1st, while Yoshimura's barges were leaving Choisel en route to Kolombangera, the Americans spotted the decoy destroyers northwest of Choisel at 9.20 a.m. via the FP-54 Black Cat that began tealing the force as it was heading in the direction of Vela La Vela. Now, Merrill had orders not to risk his cruisers unless heavy Japanese units were found, so he turned back and allowed Wilkinson's destroyers to advance. The Americans chased the decoy towards Vela La Vela as Yoshimoto's barges went relatively unmolested, though a small group of barges would be fired upon by U.S. destroyers, losing two in the process. On the morning of October the 2nd, Idrin departed Rabal with nine destroyers, and at Villa, the Yokozuka 7th guns would fire their last rounds before moving towards the coast. That night, Idrin approached Kolombangera as Tanegashima awaited with 2,100 men to be transported onto the destroyers. They managed to load 145 men by 1035, but then the destroyers were forced to pull back as Americans had been spotted in the slot. Tanegashima nonetheless headed for Sunbei Head with the rest, 600 men in all. Commander Harold O. Larson with three destroyers, Ralph Talbot, Taylor, and La Vallette, dashed across the slot to hit the barges. Larson located the barges and began firing upon them when Injun's destroyers appeared at 1042. The Americans closed in on the Japanese and fired torpedoes at 1125, scoring no hits. They then opened fire with their guns, targeting the Minazuki. The Japanese scattered, prompting a chase, but it fell into nothing by midnight. In the end, the Americans managed to sink five of Tanegashima's barges. With that, the Japanese had successfully completed Operation Seigo, rescuing 4,000 men in the second stage, for a near total of 10,000 men in all. The Japanese had truly proved themselves capable evacuatees, if that is a word. With the evacuation of Guadalcanal, Kiska, and now Colombangera, they certainly were becoming experts at evacuations. But that's all for the Solomons, as we now need to venture back over to Green Hell. Poor General Adachi's 18th Army was not being given a single break. Just a week after the fall of Ley, General MacArthur's southwest Pacific area had launched two new offensives aimed at the Ramu Valley and Finchhafen. Operation Cartwheel had initially scheduled an offensive against the Huan Peninsula to take place six weeks after the taking of Ley. But MacArthur pushed this forward due to intelligence indicating the Japanese were in the process of sending heavy reinforcements from Medang to aid the Ramu Valley and Finchhafen. The first objectives for the Allies were Kaya Pit and Dampu in the Markham and Ramu Valleys, where airfields could be constructed to help General Kenny extend his arm. Lack of air and naval capability meant that the Japanese would be forced to march nearly 200 miles to reach places like Finchhafen, with reinforcements giving MacArthur ample room to hit the port before they could. Now, in the previous episode, we saw Brigadier Windir successfully land his forces at Scarlet Beach, with the 2 and 17th advancing further to secure the Song River area, the 2 and 15th captured Katika, and the 2 and 13th were advancing southwards towards Held's Back and Tarako. Just like at Ley, the Japanese were taken completely off guard by the landings, 
prompting General Adachi to order General Yamada to hit the enemy at the most opportune moment. While General Katagiri's 20th Division were quickly dispatched on 20 large barges for a coastal advance. Katagiri's men reached Sio by barge on September the 21st, and from there he was dispatching his 2nd Battalion, 79th Regiment, with three machine gun platoons and an artillery company to Kalasa Kalanoa area, while the rest would concentrate around the Sio area until September the 30th. Yamano ordered his forces to concentrate at Sandalberg Mountains, an important point 1,000 meters above sea level, which dominated the Finchafen area. It was hoped holding such a point would allow a launching pad for future counteroffensives. Meanwhile, Winder ordered the 2 and 15th Battalion to lead an advance towards the Bumi River, while the 2 and 13th consolidated at the Heldsback Plantation launch jetty area. Yet Woon also gave Winder the task of securing Saddleburg. So he ordered Lieutenant Main's company of the 2 and 17th with an additional platoon for the job. On September the 24th, Main signaled, Coilless 1 PL now approx 3 miles along main track and proceeding to Saddleburg. Patrol PIB moving ahead of Koi. Now, Saddleburg was an interesting spot to defend. It was initially a 19th century German mission, about 5 miles inland, with a height of 3,150 feet. It offered a bird's eye view of the coastal area, making it a particularly important point. Allied intelligence misjudged how inaccessible it was, and there was this belief its occupation was merely a method of guarding one's right flank. Yamada's men were easily able to slip into Saddleburg via the Tiramoro, Gurukor, and Kunawe. This certainly would not be the same case for the Allied forces. On September the 22nd, the 22nd Battalion had departed Hopoi. They marched through some swampy terrain towards Witteru without opposition. By 8 a.m. on the 23rd, they saw their first signs of the Japanese occupation. They had also run into locals who began reporting to them that the Japanese had spent the night at Bunagim. At 1.35 p.m., they had reached Bois, where the leading troops had a small skirmish with a Japanese outpost, which quickly withdrew. By 4 p.m., part of the Australian forces seized a steep ridge where the track cut around 250 yards east of Bois. When it began to get dark, they began to be fired upon from a mountain gun. The fire was coming from an area near the mouth of the Monkey River. Meanwhile, the 2 and 15th Battalion were advancing along a coastal track, with its leading platoon reaching the mouth of the Bumi by midday. The river looked to be fordable. What they didn't know was that two mixed companies of the 85th Naval Garrison had fortified and wired positions on its southern bank. When the Australians began crossing, they were fired upon, prompting Lieutenant Shrapnel, who has an absolutely awesome name uh, to be in the military, to order six three-inch motors to be brought up to support the Bumi crossing. The battalion continued their advance along the foothills of the Krutberg Range. This was the first time any units of the 9th Division, apart from the 2 and 24th Battalion, and some individual companies had done any hill climbing on New Guinea. It was a very tough initiation. There was no track and zero water. The force had to cut their way for about 800 yards through dense jungle and then go up a slope so steep that any man carrying a heavy load had to have it passed up to him. Several tin hats clattered down the hillside and the stretcher bearers left all but two stretchers going halfway up. It's that unsexy stuff about war. 
But terrain can be just as much of an enemy to you and your objective than the actual enemy. They reached the crest of the ridge, took a breather, and then began advancing south. The next day, the 2 and 13th began to join them, allowing the 2 and 15th to move off towards the Bumi. However, to their amazement, upon reaching the river at 10 a.m., they found it unoccupied on the southern bank. Now, they could see some barbed wire, but they could not see any Japanese. Then, as they advanced some more, they were immediately fired upon. It was all a deception. A company led by Captain Snell was ordered to cross the river to create a beachhead on the opposite side. The men entered the waist-deep water further down, seeing one man killed by enemy fire. Bullets were flying around as the Australians were providing cover fire as best as they could. As the men crossing went further down, they found an area not occupied by the enemy and formed a bridgehead. From there, more men were able to safely get across. However, the position under pouring rain forced the Australians to improvise. They had a supply issue, and they needed better access, so they would cut a track around the foothills to the bridgehead positions. The difficulty was that the rain had really begun to kick in, and it was causing enormous delays. Windeer ordered a jeep track to be established from the coastal track due north of Kemaloa, which would go to the bridgehead to compensate. A platoon of the 2 and 3rd Pioneers and some men of the 2 and 17th, 2 and 13th, and 2 and 15th were employed to carry supplies along the current path until the track was made, to their misery. On September the 25th, Lieutenant Mayer led a patrol of the 2 and 13th out to deal with some troublesome enemy motors to the east. At around 9 a.m., they found a Japanese outpost 20 feet above them. They were fired upon, losing two men dead and four wounded. The enemy was firing from some bunkers and foxholes with barbed wire coming up from the river. Other patrols tried to prod the area as the 2 and 3rd Field Company and the pioneers of the 2 and 15th finished cutting the new jeep track. When the track was completed, Windeer ordered the men to not advance south of the Mume for another two days at least. This was to allow more supplies to be brought up near the river crossing. Back over at Scarlet Beach, Japanese aircraft were striking them early in the morning as Allied aircraft hit airfields on New Britain. At 12.30 p.m. on September the 24th, a Japanese air force of 12 bombers and 20 Zero fighters hit Australian positions at the north end of the airstrip. Artillery pieces that had been pounding Kakagog and the Salakawa plantation areas were hit very hard. 60 or so bombs were dropped, leading to 18 gunner casualties, and the 2 and 3rd Field Company had 14 deaths and 19 wounded. Despite the airstrikes, by September the 25th, there was something worse to worry about emerging from the west. After the 2 and 17th began their advance to Saddleburg, which Papuan infantrymen had reported was unoccupied, it became soon apparent this was false information. After passing 800 yards beyond... Jivenang, the same Papuan infantry, could visually see that Saddleburg was anything but unoccupied. It was, in fact, heavily fortified. Now, the 2 and 17th were still on their merry way to Saddleburg, none the wiser. In fact, they had reached Jivenang and mistook it to be Saddleburg, not realizing they had to cross a place called the Coconut Ridge to get over to Saddleburg. Windeer received brand new reports from the Papuans that Saddleburg was heavily fortified while simultaneously the 2 and 17th vanguard patrols ran into some forward defensive lines around Saddleburg. The 2 and 17th patrols were hit very hard by motors and grenades and they were forced to pull back rather quickly. 
Windir decided he was stretched too thin in the area, so he ordered everyone to pull back to Jaivaneng. The Japanese now saw the Australian presence on Saddleberg Road. General Yamada planned an offensive against the Heldsback to cut the enemy off north of Arnt Point. Meanwhile, by 2 p.m., Colonel Grace of the 2 and 13th was ordered to seize Snell's Hill, a high ground southeast of the bridgehead. By 9 a.m., some platoons were patrolling the area when Lieutenant Webb's platoon ran 400 yards into a Japanese position sitting on a spur controlling a track from Tiramoro. Lieutenant Webb reported it in, prompting Lieutenant Grace to call in for support. The men would be facing around 150 men of Yamada's 85th Naval Garrison. Two companies of the 2 and 15th took up the job, and they would begin by literally falling and tumbling 150 yards from their assembly line. They were tripping over vines, bamboo, and heavy timber descending down a valley. When they got 450 yards from the slope of Snell's Hill, they were pretty exhausted. However, Yamada's naval troops gave them no time to take a breath as they began lobbing grenades down the hill. Luckily, the grenade shower was rather ineffective. The Australians used cover fire as best as they could because they could not hope to toss grenades back up at them lest they tumble back down upon them. The Australians charged up the slope, bayonets fixed. As they came to its summit, many of the Japanese turned and fled for their lives. Sergeant Fink took his men through a kunai patch to try and hit the Japanese rear, managing to clear some machine gun nests in the process. During his sweeping maneuver, ten casualties were inflicted upon the Australians. Fink's men drew a lot of the enemy fire, relieving pressure from the others who led a frontal and left-wing attack. Over on the left wing, Captain Stewart's men charged through some kunai grass as well, overrunning two 30mm gun nests. About 40 to 50 Japanese panicked upon seeing this, and they ran back to an observation post. Soon, the Australian platoons began to consolidate and applied more pressure. Stewart's advanced in what he termed an extended line desert formation, not in a file according to orthodox jungle tactics. Three 13mm guns were captured, seven LMGs, a ton of motors, and rifles, and over 52 Japanese would be buried on that summit. It was an intense action, seeing potentially 100 casualties inflicted by the 2 and 15th, who in return had three deaths and seven wounded. While the 2 and 15th had been tackling Snell Hill, the 2 and 13th tried to cut across the Tiramoro track to another high ground called Starvation Hill. Around five minutes after the Snell battle started, some gunfire could be seen coming from the other high ground. A few platoons of the 2 and 13th were immediately ordered to check it out. As the men advanced along the Tiramoro track, they came across thick vegetation along the slope going up to Starvation Hill. Companies 7 and 8 of the 2 and 38th were defending Starvation Hill, and they held a great field of fire looking down. The men began to crawl through it, going up along the slope. Men were on their hands and knees going through thick bamboo, and the progress was rather slow and noisy because of the bamboo, which would make these sharp snapping sounds. The two leading platoons took what cover they could as a storm of fire erupted. Japanese LMGs were opening up, forcing the Australians to try and pull back safely 150 yards and hunker down for the night. Nine men were cut down during the mayhem. Over in the north, Yamada ordered the 3rd Battalion 80th Regiment to hit Scarlet Beach. En route to Scarlet Beach was Major Pike's company of the 2 and 17th, who were guarding the approaches to the beach from Katika. 
Pike had sent a small patrol out, and 2,500 yards to the west, they ran into some patrols of Yamada's forces. At around midday, 30 Japanese attacked a position west of Katika, held by Lieutenant McLeod. Two Japanese were killed, including an officer who had a marked map and what looked like an operation order on him. To the south, Windeyer received a report of what was going on, and he ordered Pike to send out a stronger patrol to hit and locate the enemy so that their artillery could fire upon them. A platoon went out in the afternoon, and after 2,000 yards or so, they found the enemy and ordered their artillery to fire upon them. The platoon was met with heavy fire, leading Sergeant Brightwell to be shot dead as the men pulled back to Katika. Thus, Yamada's plans to hit Scarlet Beach quickly dissolved into back-and-forth patrol skirmishes in the Saddleburg and Katika areas. The new threat to the west forced Windir to request reinforcements. Reluctantly, General MacArthur and Admirals Barbie and Carpenter authorized the sending of reinforcements to an area that they had assumed had a small enemy presence. General Herring met with Barbie aboard the Cunningham, informing him Finchhafen would require an additional brigade. Barbie declined to transport the extra troops to Finchhafen. On the grounds, it was against MacArthur's orders. Apparently, MacArthur's planners felt that Finchhafen was going to be a pushover and they had pretty much considered the operation one and done already. Herring then asked Carpenter to help transport the additional units, but was amazed to discover that the Americans would not comply unless the matter went first to MacArthur. Nonetheless, Carpenter planned to transport the units via small craft staging out of Ley when Finchhafen was cleared. Then Windir's urgent request for reinforcements came in, indicating things were not one and done and that Finchhafen had not fallen. Herring then sent a secret signal to Blamey and MacArthur pleading for additional help, which finally secured him the 2nd Battalion of the 43rd Regiment by the end of the month. Back over to Jaivanang, on the 27th, telephone lines to Zag were suddenly cut, and one of the 2 and 17th's patrols made contact with the Japanese. The 2 and 17th at Jaivanang opened fire with artillery upon the Saddleburg area, and along the main track. Then, after dusk, a platoon of screaming Japanese, apparently screaming Tojo, charged the Jaivanang defensive lines. Six of them were killed in the attack. Windir ordered what became known as the Saddle Force, two companies of the 2 and 17th, led by Lieutenant Main and Lieutenant Pike, to take control of the Saddleburg track, and the tracks leading back to the beachhead. On the 28th, Saddle Force began probing, but between 3 to 8 p.m., a company of Japanese made three consecutive attacks against them. All of the attacks were coming from the front and left flank, seeing screaming Japanese charging madly upon them. Main's company was soon running low on ammunition, and they feared a dawn attack was approaching. Main estimated the enemy had suffered up to 60 casualties at this point. During the morning of the 29th, Main's assumption about a dawn attack came true, as they were hit by a Japanese platoon, but after this, the Japanese were tired. Maine's men would find 30 dead Japanese after performing an intense defense in a rather isolated position. The 2 and 43rd Battalion landing at Scarlet Beach at 3.30 a.m. and their commander, Lieutenant Joshua, would immediately be ordered, You will relieve the troops known as Saddle Force. This relief to be completed as speedily as possible to enable 2 and 17th Battalion to concentrate for operations against Finchhafen. And 13 hours later, that's just what they did. On September the 17th, Windeyer ordered the 2 and 13th to exploit the gains made by the 2 and 15th to capture Kakagog. 
while the 2 and 15th would attack the Salankawa plantation. Back over at Starvation Hill, Mortar Sergeant Chon led a patrol getting as close as possible to the hill. A telephone wire was carried up and Chon found himself an observation point at the edge of a bamboo patch, just 20 yards or so near the Japanese. Despite being dangerously close to the enemy, he directed 3-inch motor fire down upon them. He only had 15 motor bombs to work with, thus this led him to be very critical with his positioning. Before firing them off, he sent word to the other platoon leaders that an attack could be made. A platoon led by Sergeant McVeigh advanced to the edge of the bamboo, ready to pounce. Chone lined up with McVeigh's men, called the motor fire, and then charged up the slope altogether. The Japanese were caught by complete surprise, seeing the enemy suddenly on top of them. Many of the Japanese fled at the offset, thus Starvation Hill was captured with pinpoint precision. Yet, unbeknownst to the Australians, the only Japanese atop Starvation were actually rearguards, as the 7th and 8th companies of the 238th Regiment had already withdrawn over to the Saddleburg area that very morning. The next day, the 213th made their way cautiously over to Kakagog. Their objectives were three demolished buildings known as the Triangle, and the remains of Kakagog Hospital, which was now designated the city. These were found on the west and east ends of Kakagok, respectively. D Company, led by Lieutenant Cribb, and A Company, led by Lieutenant Cooper, crossed over a spur on their way to hit the triangle. Cribb took to the left, Cooper to the right, as they advanced upon the objective. They were met with a heavy bombardment, but the aim was apparently so bad, the men would joke, We were under more danger from falling coconuts than the gunnery itself. Their attack only got 300 yards past Schnell's Hill by September the 29th. The next day, the men continued to advance, and now the enemy's artillery took a toll upon them, causing them to halt. Two other companies, led by Lieutenant Stewart and Coblin, were penetrating east of the Ilabay Creek, without any opposition. They got within 50 yards of the Salankawa Plantation, but they had to cross a bridge to close the distance. Fording the river was extremely dangerous, probably more dangerous than attempting the bridge. So instead, the companies launched smaller patrols to try and prod out their options. It quickly became apparent by the late afternoon the element of surprise was all but lost. Luckily for the frustrated men, the Salvation Army and YMCA were up with the troops. The religious and welfare organizations looked after the men's physical and spiritual comfort. After the war, there were few Australian ex-soldiers who would not put a coin in the Salvo's box when it was passed around the pub or street corner, as it brought back memories of their aid during the fighting. One soldier who fought across the Boomi River would write, Another army came down to the Boomi. Its weapons, a coffee urn. Its captain, a good Samaritan. Proudly, he hoisted his unit's flag. He came not to reproach us for our past sins or preach of the men we might have been. It is ideal, practical Christianity. He succorned the wounded and sick, revived the tired and weary. His was a happy little halfway tavern for those that passed. The next day, the 2 and 17th were relieved and they would advance south, while the 2 and 13th came up for another assault against Kakagog. At 6.20 a.m., Colvin reported back to Windair that there was going to be some delays as the men needed first to take some higher ground. Windair back over in Scarlet Beach decided he would come over to see it all for himself. 
In the meantime, some patrols were poking around the triangle, and to their surprise, they found no sign of the anime. When Windu arrived, it was decided the men would attack from the northwest. The 2 and 13th would hit the triangle, while the 2 and 17th would hit the Salankawa plantation. On October the 1st, they were supported by an aerial strike at 11 a.m., followed by some artillery. For some reason, that no one would ever find out why, this all began at 10.35 a.m. instead. Ten Volti Vengeances and eight Bostons bombed and strafed the Salankawa plantation and Kakagog, doing pretty little damage, but keeping the Japanese hunkered down. As the aircraft disappeared, the infantry had to run to their assembly points just in the nick of time to get ready to advance under an artillery barrage. When one platoon got 250 yards near the city, grenades and motor fire occurred. The Australians could now see the enemy was hiding in the area and waiting for them to advance. As the men forded the Illibit Creek, they were fired upon heavily, suffering a few casualties before the men dispersed for cover. Instead of continuing across, many changed direction and joined the assault upon the triangle. The Australians were getting pinned down in every sector, seeing men trying to hide behind anything that they could. The situation seemed quite desperate. Then suddenly Lieutenant Crawford took charge of the situation and organized a bayonet-fixed direct attack across the Illibay. Crawford ordered the men to toss their grenades over the top of the two platoons charging over the creek in an attempt to rush the enemy post on the other side. One Private Rolf stood up on the bank of the creek and began firing his Bren from the hip providing wild covering fire. The men charged over the creek, being fired upon by Japanese snipers from treetops. Despite their firepower, the Japanese were unable to stop the bayonet charge as the Australians ran them down. Crawford was wounded during the attack, but they practically annihilated the entire outpost, bayoneting many Japanese. Due east of them, near the Salankawa plantation, the men began to take out the treetop snipers. Twelve two-inch motors helped keep the pressure and the momentum going. The creek area was secured, seeing 50 dead Japanese at the cost of 27 Australians. With the Illibay Creek area cleared out, the pressure increased against the triangle and the city. Artillery was raining down upon them. Likewise, heavy fire was coming back from Kakagog Ridge. By 3 p.m., the Australians found themselves pinned down yet again. And yet again, they had to halt their attack and dig in for the night, as they had 10 deaths and 70 wounded. Though they estimated that they had killed something like 80 to 100 Japanese atop Kakagog Ridge. The casualties would force the Japanese to abandon the Salankawa plantation area. Meanwhile, after advancing to Kasanga, the 22nd Battalion was able to seize Timbulam and Logoweng without opposition, and they were now preparing to cross the Mapi River. On October the 2nd, the 2 and 13th would find Kakagog Ridge abandoned, but they were very cautiously checking every nook and cranny upon it, expecting further Japanese ambushes. A forward patrol went to the triangle and saw signs of an evacuation. Numerous dead Japanese and abandoned equipment everywhere. The 2 and 17th likewise found the mouth of the Bumi River unoccupied. An easily secured a bridgehead before finding the Salankawa plantation unoccupied as well. With the enemy gone, the 2 and 15th were sent forward towards Simbang, the 2 and 17th towards Kolum. With that, Finshafen had technically fallen. It was a bitter fight, 
But by early October, it was evident the enemy were yielding the coastal strip to assemble further west at a peak of Sandelberg, which dominated the entire area. The 2 and 17th had already found out the hard way what it was like to approach Sandelberg. And now the 2 and 43rd were trying to rescue one of their companies pinned down at Chaifenang. Though Finchafen was theirs, it was by no means secure. Papuan infantry and friendly locals were sending reports the Japanese were entering the Wario Settleberg area from the north. The cost for this victory had been 73 Australians killed, 285 wounded, and 301 sick. To the west at Kayapit, the Australians were consolidating their position along the Markham Valley and preparing to resume their advance on Ramu. Brigadier Doherty's brigade were flown over to Kayapit to relieve King's Valiant Commandos. Meanwhile, General Nakai ordered the Saito unit to infiltrate and raid the Australian positions. The 80 men of the Saito unit were led by Captain Morisada, who organized his men into four smaller attack groups. Back on September the 23rd, three Saito groups carried out their first operation, successfully blowing up the billet of a commanding officer and setting fire to an entire kunai patch that delayed an Australian advance. Meanwhile, the bulk of the Nakai detachment withdrew back to the Ramu Valley, where they established fortifications at the Kankiri Mountains. Kankiri means the Summit of Joy, and was named so on June of 1943 when the troops of the 20th Division reached its peak to look down upon Ramu Valley, cheering as they did because they had just completed the road coming over from Medang. However, by late September, the Australians now looked to be approaching that said road going to Medang. By the 23rd, the 216th Battalion captured Antirigan, and then the Umi River crossing. The next day was quite a handful for them alongside the 216th Independent Company. Both had patrols probing the Sagarek when they ran to some Japanese rearguards. Two-inch motors and rifles pushed the rearguard to pull back, and soon some patrols were moving on towards Narawampum. Meanwhile, a Papuan company was patrolling its northern foothills, trying to find a fast route for the Australians to take to catch up to the Japanese in the Bona Wantout areas. Around midday, the 2 and 16th and 2 and 6th were crossing the Umi to secure some high ground south of Sagarak. They clashed with around 20 Japanese carrying full packs in the Narawampum area, causing them all to flee. All of these Japanese forces were from the 1st Battalion, 78th Regiment, struggling to establish decent delaying actions. General Vesey then appointed a new objective, Dumpu, where he hoped to catch General Nakano's men, who he assumed were retreating up the Ramu Valley towards Bogazim. In reality, Nakano's 51st Division were withdrawing through the Sarawak Range, whose track deteriorated as it went up the upper reaches of the Sanam River. Private Kitamoto, who was traveling with the 51st, would recall. After we escaped the clutches of the enemy, we were confronted by nature. Here the living had to walk across the dead to stay on the track. Using the dead bodies as stepping stones and clinging to the slippery lichen-covered rocks, the men made their way up the mountain. Fresh red blood ran from the mouth of the dead when they were stepped on, and their glassy eyes stared us in the face. Approaching 4,000 meters, the cold bit hard into the light summer uniforms. The soldiers wore, but the exhausted men could not stop to sleep, or they would freeze to death. The screaming voices of the men who slipped from the log bridges to their death in the canyons below, 
and the wailing cries of the men who could move no more and were simply asking for help. It was a sense of hell, something quite out of this world. Under the belief there was a strong enemy presence covering the withdrawal, possibly the full 20th Division, Doherty decided to order the 216th back across the Umi River on September the 25th. At the same time, Nakai had ordered the bulk of his 70th Regiment to take up a position in the Garumbu Kankiri area. For the 1st Battalion, 26th Field Artillery Regiment to defend the seashore in the Irima area, and for the 2nd Battalion, 70th Regiment to advance into the Yokopi Mountain area to defend Kesawai. Meanwhile, the last battalion of the 21st Brigade had just arrived to Kayapit, so Vesey ordered Brigadier Ether's 25th Brigade to be the next one flown in. General Herring had decided to place the Bina force under Vesey's command, which was ordered to cross the Ramu Valley to assault Dempu and Kesawe. For the next few days, heavy patrolling was conducted at Dempu, the upper Ramu Valley, Kayapit, Sagarak, and eventually past the Umi River. Patrols would find no enemy at Kayapit nor Sagarak. This prompted Doherty to believe that there was no enemy east of the Umi. On the 28th, Doherty ordered the 216th Battalion to recross the river and successfully began occupying Sagarak, as the rest of the brigade made their way over afterwards. On the 29th, the 21st Brigade were advancing west, taking Wankon Hill and Marawasa facing no opposition. On that same day, some Australian commandos of the Bina Force, led by Captain Dexter, were advancing west to Kesaway, where they established a new ambush position. The Australians tried to lure the Japanese to the ambush area, with three men boldly coming over to a Japanese base, drawing their attention. The three men ran back to the ambush position and wondered if it all had worked, and soon 60 Japanese appeared. Their commanding officer was within 30 yards of the ambush area when the Australians began opening up fire. The Australians had taken a semicircle position, and the effect was like a reaper's scythe. A larger group of Japanese then rapidly came over once they had heard all the gunfire, and the Australians were soon running low on ammunition. Dexter was wounded, another man was killed, so they began a quick withdrawal, racing back for the Ramu, in broad daylight. While this was going on, Ether's forces were beginning to assemble at Kayapit. On September the 30th, Doherty's units advanced to the Gusap River, which divided Markham and Ramu Valley. In the battalion's report of the crossing of the Gusap River, they described it as such. It was a complete surprise to most of the battalion to learn that during the day's march, actually just before reaching the Arafagan Creek, they had crossed the divide between the Markham and Ramu River basins. The divide was impossible to pinpoint on the ground as the gradients were imperceptible. The only visible indication that a divide had been crossed was that rivers were now flowing in the opposite directions from the Markham drainage basin. It was at this point Basie realized he might not be facing the full strength of the 20th Division, as he received a report that Wuhan was apparently fighting them over at Finchafen. Upon looking over the matter, Blamey and Herring decided to not heavily commit to the Markham and Ramu Valleys, but instead to prioritize the battle for Finchafen, which apparently was not over. The commanders all met at Ley on October the 1st, where Herring agreed to allow Vesey to push towards Dampu, but he would not allow him to remove the whole of two independent companies from the Bina Bina Plateau. 
Basie ordered Doherty and Ether to concentrate on the Gusap area and for the 2 and 7th independent company to scout the Bum Bum area. The Bum Bum area. God, I love New Guinea. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all of that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Do me a favor and check out my episode on the wonky Ramry Island Massacre myth. And also, you can check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel if you want to hear more exclusive podcasts. This month's podcast is going to be a special on Tomiyuki Yamashita, how he became the Tiger of Malaya. The Japanese pulled off another incredible evacuation, similar to that of Guadalcanal and Kiska, with Operation Sago officially being successful. Over on Green Hell, the battle for Finschhafen was turning out to not be so much of a pushover, and it was looking like another major offensive was afoot.